Welcome to the Language for Leading podcast with the founder and CEO of the Business of Leading Incorporated, Julian Sturton. Since the early 1990s, Julian has equipped leaders from across the globe with an operating system and real-world set of tools that have improved relationships on all levels, and the work has meant real success in business and life for so many. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich, and today we welcome another thought leader. She's Rabbi Jennifer Jake, who served Temple Israel of Northern Westchester, New York, since her ordination in 2003. Prior to rabbinical school, Rabbi Jake worked in state politics and higher education administration in Washington State. She's here to help us think about and discuss a topic many might choose to ignore, many don't want to face it, and that is death and how we deal with death. Should be fascinating. Julian Sturton, as always, leads us off. The world is in so many assorted conditions right now. A large part of those conditions are frightening people and and giving a reinforcement as to the uncertainty as to the human race. You know, where do we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we going? So the mix in that has to do with fears and concerns and looking at the fallout of those kind of uncertainties and fears. There's a lot of what I used to call back in England, trouble at mill. They used to use that in the cotton days back in England when there was trouble with the manufacturing of cotton in the old days. I think that's where it came from anyway. So we're we're here to provoke a response. And I invited you, and I'm so glad you're you're participating in this, Jennifer. It's not a lecture, because I don't like lecturing, although I do sort of go on a bit, right, Jordan? I hadn't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of very disturbing conditions going on in our world. We want to be able to established not like some sort of instruction but more like a a wake-up call or a way of being is perhaps making us aware of our awareness we've got these surrounding conditions as the evidence for our awareness and death just like other particular chosen points from previous interviews is one of those many conditions what we call human conditions and our response facilitates our ability to interconnect through and with those conditions. And our responsibility is how we are conscious of and how we are able to be uh, the functionality system by comparing, choosing, accepting. And that language is possibly how uh, the how-to of our existence. And that death and the other headlines are what takes place between now, the past, and what lies ahead. So I don't know how many people are that prepared for death. And so I I laid out a few sort of bullet points, one of which was uh, the word prepared, and am I prepared, and are we prepared? Well, there's actions, there's reactions, and how are we responsible for these preparations if we're prepared or not so i wanted to throw it out at you jennifer because i've got a whole bunch of notes and i i've got some uh experience in in attending a dialogue and interaction with many many different cultures even my own particular life has been uh put in a situation when you know part of my background and jordan knows my background of course I've had to confront a number of different crises. And that's why I'm excited 
to be having this kind of dialogue, especially as I have the deepest respect for yourself. And I've, as you know, I've attended um, many of your sermons. <laughs> I just enjoy that kind of way in which you communicate uh, life at large, rather than just a lecturing to sort of uh, be formal, yes? So what what did you have on your mind since you've been the, uh, gracious to be able to participate in this particular occasion? Well, one of the things I, I think is uh, relevant, especially in terms of the work you're trying to do, Julie, and I, I think it's death is the great equalizer, right? And something that we're all going to have to face. And as we, we discussed yesterday, we can even, when we look back on our own life, we can divide it into those significant losses that we had uh, of, of loved ones. You know, you you uh, lost your parents in different ways. Um, my, my mother died when I was 10. So my early childhood was kind of colored by that loss. So loss is something that we, loss of loved ones is something that we we, we must face throughout our lives. And then of course, our own eventual death. Now, this happens without thinking about it, but it just so happens that just about three years ago um, to this day, all of us faced the reality of our mortality as we had this novel coronavirus come onto the scene. Um, we did not know how to respond to it. It was clear it was killing people and we weren't sure right away who was going to be stricken by this virus. And one of the things I wondered at the time is whether or not this collective facing of our mortality would change us in any way as human beings. Would, would it make us, because, because how we respond to death is, is what's I think most salient you know, for us. What do we do in the face of, of, our, of the knowledge of our mortality? And I wondered as, at the beginning of the pandemic, whether or not we would become kinder would we, would we become more unified knowing that we the virus didn't care about cultural divides or language divides or race or ethnicity? It was we were a, a host, you know, for this virus and the virus could kill us. D did that change uh, change us? No. And, and I think it's uh, because we when it comes to big topics like death and it's not the only topic where we, we react like this, human beings quickly want to go back to what feels normal to them, right? Go back to the uh, the status quo. So those are just some of the things that I've been thinking about on this topic, Julian. Yeah, because you've brought up some very, 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 not just warm considerations. I don't know whether they're concerns, but they're warm as well as getting hotter. The more we sometimes want to revert back to words like normal. Mm -hmm. Are we going backwards? Are we moving forwards? Are we learning? Are we painting a different picture regarding the, the term responsibility when we don't necessarily have to think as to whether what we're saying and how we're related, is it normal? It's been putting the public domain at large, even though we tend to assume things like public publicity and a variety of domains, and those words are being sort of 
extended, especially amongst social media. And I get about five emails every day after people have looked at my website. And even when they are anonymous, it's, it's dear Mr. Sir Stroke Madam, we notice your website. Is there something that we can provide? I think the term anonymity has got a lot to do with whether or not we recognize and have we learned sufficiently enough from these outpourings of sufferings regarding this coronavirus? And has that woken us up enough to be responsible to alter the varieties of concerns and fears we have? As the old saying from Wang Zhu, a founder of Taoism, if we don't change our direction, uh, are we end up, uh, will we end up where we've headed? Are we likely to end up where we're headed? Which gives a, a peculiar intervention as to how much we know about where we come from, what we're doing here, and where we're going. Well, that's what uh, a purpose of religion is, right? To, to, I think religions grew up to kind of provide us with uh, narrative stories to discuss so that we can grapple with these ineffable, you know, realities of, of life. Um, religion, you know, provides us with a community within which we can talk about these uh, big questions. Um, you know, that, that's as far as we know, we human beings are, are, are the only animals who really understand that our time is limited. Um, you know, there, there may be other mammals who also have this understanding, but as far as we know, we know we humans are distinct from other creatures and that we understand mm. that we're going to die one day. Now, Rabbi, if I can jump in here and just add, uh, and Julie and I have these discussions on all topics and it's fun to bat around ideas, but I love what you said. The gift, in a, in a sense, of knowing your a mortal being is that it allows you to live the life that is worth living. Um, the gift of knowing it's not going to be forever puts a little impetus into living this life and making this life count. At least that's the way it's worked for me. That's the the treasure of, of knowing our mortality, I think. And as somebody who has attended many, many, many funerals mm -hmm. and listened to uh, loved ones talk about the, the person who has died, you know, I'm, I'm always struck by, you know, thinking about, you know, how, how do I want to be remembered? How do I want people to talk about me when I'm gone? Um, and the, the most fulfilling, I mean, lives, I think, are the ones that are really grounded in relationships where, where the pe person who died was really known by others and loved by others. Um, it's really not about... I rarely hear somebody wax on and on about at a funeral about somebody's professional accomplishments. Right. It's really about how did that person make me feel? Not to mix not yeah. not to mix cultural metaphors, but Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of a Christmas carol. I know I'm talking to a rabbi here. Ebenezer Scrooge is not going to be remembered. He'll be spurned for what he was in life, a miser and a horrible person, and yet he has an opportunity to change his ways when he realizes his life is short. I, I love that message. 
Anyway. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the gifts, I think, about uh, our, our own, my own religious tradition, which is progressive reform Judaism. Um, but, but it's present in other you know, religions as well, not exclusive to mine, is, is this idea that human beings can change, right? There is always a possibility for redemption. And so, you know, maybe the coronavirus did not wake us up as a human, as, as the whole of humanity, to the fact that we should be uh, treating each other with more grace and kindness. But, but that doesn't mean that it can't happen. And I, I think that that idea of hope for redemption uh, is, is crucial, I think, for, for human beings to keep moving forward. Yeah, I was listening on my journey back from Florida. I had four, 15 hours of time to either listen to myself or listen to other people. But I spent my time listening to uh, a prolongated podcast with many, many, many interesting guests on the on the Conan O'Brien. And while that was interspaced with another interview on the BBC, they were talking regard to this COVID. And interestingly, you bring it up. Are we learning enough? to overcome the fears of our backgrounds or our past repeating themselves. I'm often asked about fear, and I sort of dumbed it down as suggesting that fear may be uh, not being in control and the past repeating itself. Mm. That could be a debate for another day. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking at the term long COVID because our sufferings are mixed up with all kinds of concerns around illness and the well-being industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may know that one of the people who we're going to be interviewing is, is one of the ex-heads of Pfizer, who is one of my dearest clients and who is my client for 19 years, a gentleman called Tony Madaluna. And instead of just ranting on too much about the wrongs and the rights of the pharmaceutical industry and how it was was attending to the prevention of death, uh, we decided not to just reference the, the peculiarities of what gets mixed up in the pharmaceutical industry. We kind of painted a bigger pitch, and I think this is pertaining to the words death and fear and the variety of responses and concerns we have about fear. And so Tony and I referred to our work as being the well-being industry which kind of cap captivates a lot of interest from more than just people who make drugs or work for the FDA or provide supporting finances, you see. So I think that the whole idea of being in regards to uh, understanding who we are and where we're going and how much death does play a role, as you're aware, Jennifer, how much death does play a role in our thinking not so much as we're all prepared for death, but we're all in some kind of transformation, transition, aren't we? Mm -hmm. From some different depths of understanding who we are and what is at stake, so that by being conscious of that, are we making ourselves more aware of the precipitations of our condition? And if we're not waking up, are we actually too late to prepare for things that will wake us up before death shows up on our doorstep, yeah? And you're a perfect person. I mean, looking at, I don't know if Jordan knows this, um, 
fact, you can highlight on some background because you transitioned from one form of religion, um, which I think is Lutheranism, correct? Right. The strictest, most joyless stream of Lutheranism. Well, you came aboard to a religion that has many more holidays, which is a good thing to begin with. <laughs> many more holidays as, and better food. As a fellow, he oh, definitely better food. <laughs> Go ahead, Julian. I'm sorry. I don't know whether I'm I'm still in that transition, having been held hostage, not too dangerously, by my religious upbringing. You see, where my grandfather was uh, was a pastor and a senior clergyman in the Church of England. And he became a canon of Peterborough Cathedral when I went to a school founded by Henry VIII. So I suppose I could call myself a, a transitionist, if, that, if that's the correct terminology. Yes. And of course, I'm now in a little bit like no man's land, having married a, a very wonderful lady who is Jewish, as you, as, you, as you have met Karen numbers of times. And I've got two wonderful, adorable and highly successful grown up children. So... The whole idea of transition is a sort of a, like an open-ended book, isn't it, uh, Jennifer? Well, uh, one of the things that drew me in my own transition was that I, I, from an early age, did not want to be told that I had to believe a certain way about certain things or have a certain faith and that there was something lacking in me if I couldn't quite believe it. And and I think one of the the gifts of uh, of the, the you know spiritual home that I have now is that that uh, this is not really about providing answers for people, this enterprise. This is about learning to live with the questions of life that, that, that we don't really don't have answers to. We can put forward answers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the answers because there are some things in life that just don't have answers. You know, and death, you know, what happens when we die? Uh, is, is one that has intrigued uh, humanity, you know, for a couple of millennia now. We'll tie this in with language because that's what Julian is is really a proponent of, understanding language. The culture, uh, the Western culture, the way we talk about it or don't talk about it or come up with euphemisms or uh, other ways to say it, you know, he passed on, you know, <laughs> which with nothing wrong with the way people approach that. But my thought was uh, if you could comment on what I find to be the most oddly comforting thing about death is knowing people in my own life and my own family who have been in palliative and then hospice care and approach the very end and there's no physical way they're going to come back. Their, their body is done. This is totally anecdotal, but I'm sure you can concur that this happens. People are comfortable. Those people in that bed are comfortable almost awaiting it as a doorway to take as it's, they don't fear it anymore. They welcome it. Can you comment on that? And I'm sure you've done a lot of healing and help with that approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most profound experiences I've had in my life was uh, being at the bedside of a, a young man. I think he had not turned 50 yet, who had uh, pancreatic cancer and he was dying at home. And uh, in his final hours, he was he he asked for me uh, to be there. His wife was holding his hand. His close friends, his uh, child was was there, and we were with him, you know, as he left this world. And it was peaceful. It was not. He was not afraid. He he he, uh, you know, at, at many times people who are in that state 
you know, we, we don't really know what they're feeling. We can say they, he appeared peaceful. I felt that he was actually peaceful. And I, I had um, many, many years ago too, somebody who was in the position of almost dying, being certain that she was going to die in an accident, um, described to me, it was a plane crash, actually, small plane crash in um, uh and in the moment where she thought she was going to die, she had this overwhelming feeling of peace, that she was part of something greater than herself, that she was just a particle of dust, you know, in the universe, but she would, it was all going to be okay. She ended up surviving, but I have the benefit of her telling me about that experience. And it has given me comfort uh, and it has comforted those who have spoken to me about their own fears of, of dying. Like what you're saying, especially as you are able to be, in some regards, a shining light for people in those situations, which is probably why that particular person uh, markedly called out for you, who wanted you to be there. Mm -hmm. So you provided that sort of, uh, if I may use the expression, a heaven-like light for which death is often misinterpreted as being uh, submissive or even not just unknown, but it's possibly the ultimate unknown. And I'm wondering about, since this is being sent out to many people around the world in many different cultures, and of course there's uh, a gazillion interpretations of the experience of death, whether it be on the battlefields or whether it be in situations where uh, people are starving, they're losing life without certain abilities from the higher powers above that put them in that situation. We often hear responses from communities saying, well, how on earth did the heavenly being or whatever is in the heavenly realms, allowing for the people uh, who were incarcerated in concentration camps in Germany? Mm -hmm. you know, where is it that there's a crossover between beliefs and religion? which is a, a very, very large topic. You know, I'm, I'm frequently watching uh, visitations of people who have gone back in their late 90s to visit Auschwitz. And it, 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 it's, it's more than a calling. What would you refer to that, uh, Jennifer? More than simply a calling for those people who have come very, very, very close to death. I'm not quite sure I understand what you're asking. What would you refer to that level of calling that calls for people who are then able to visit, go back to the places like Auschwitz? Mm. How does one categorize that kind of mindset? Well, it, there's two instances where that might happen. To go back as a survivor, right? Yes which I think we're, we've now, we're reaching the time when we're not going to have anybody who survived the camps. And then going back as somebody, like as I did a few years ago when we took um, a group from our congregation to Eastern Europe and we went to um, 
Theresien, Theresienstadt, and we went to Auschwitz, um, Birkenau. And we went as, um, we were called, I would say, to, to do that as a, a way to bear witness to this terrible crime. I don't pin, as you, as you know, Julian, because you've heard many of my sermons, I don't have a personal belief in a God who intervenes in history in any way. So I, I would you know, look at those atrocities and say, how did humanity allow this to happen? How did educated Germans, cultured Germans, find themselves in the state where they turned on uh, others in their society? Um, so, so I would say going back to, to, to confront these death camps, um, I think very different for somebody like me who are going to pay homage and to honor those who died and to, to raise the questions about how humanity let this happen, very different than what a survivor might feel. And right. having not gone through that experience, I can't really answer that. Well, it, it, take a look at Eli Wiesel, the, uh, yeah. who, who died recently in the last couple of years, who uh, survived the camps and then went on to write most important books about Auschwitz and and all well, the concentration camps in general to educate the world to step it up and as they say and dedicate his life to making sure it may not happen again although it does happen in in certain cases not to that extent i think yeah. that's a prime example as julian is pointing out of people not fleeing from the death and the destruction not wanting to you know envelop themselves in it every day but using it as a tool to step forward and make a difference the re response of the um, the United States of Memorial Ho Holocaust Museum, um, th they were the first organization to come out and call the genocide in Sudan a genocide and to say never again doesn't just mean never again in the 1940s in Europe. It means uh, never again today in our world are we going to allow this to, to, to happen again. That is that that is how we should respond, you know, to something like that. And when we have to teach our young people, you know, in our own community about the Holocaust, that's what we try to do, to empower them, you know, to say we can respond today um, uh, to to this atrocity in our past. And, and that's what we're called to do as, as humans. Yeah, it's interesting how we're going to be able to uh, continue to captivate the different levels of interest from different parts of society, especially as there will be people listening to this who are politicians of different sorts. And how will those listeners be able to understand that we're not provoking anything, although I'd like to say that as Gandhi walked up the steps of the Viceroy of India, he was provoking a response to prevent too much continuation of death and destruction on behalf of the British Empire. But we haven't moved very far from that kind of uh, suspiciousness between the populations of the world and their so-called political leaders when we're noticing what's going on by the Rohingya people from Myanmar and somebody who, uh, who supposedly set fire to their encampment, the biggest refugee fire on the borders of, of Myanmar and... Uh, that place where it's now the largest encampment. How is it that death and destruction comes in so many massive different di distinctions and interpretations? How can we create a certain message 
that will gain interest, not by provoking people's wrath or anger, such that they think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not interested in this particular podcast. So it's rather like we're not necessarily just speaking to the authorities regarding death and destruction. We're sort of speaking to those people who are still incarcerated in Iran. People are still incarcerated in places in the gulags in Russia, in places all over Africa, in places in Central America where they don't have the fortune of having the kind of freedom to be able to say things uh, as, as are expressions in this particular country. But I think death and freedom and those kind of policies that are not uh, able to be allowing people to express themselves when death is on their doorsteps. So I kind of sort of uh, opening up a, a broader context because, Jen, if you picked a, a fantastic uh, item to be the headline, and this is why I wasn't necessarily going to prepare notes for this particular dialogue because I'm always very subtly and consciously aware in my travels, having traveled around the world, and you too have, have traveled around the world. Um, in my visitation to, to Israel was one of those marvelous experiences that I've probably ever had in my life. I've, I've been asked now by someone who's gonna be part of the interviewing, Avner Farkash, who is an Orthodox uh, Jewish person. And he's invited us to set up an operation in Israel. Mm. And so, I'm just speaking in a very broader swath, if you like, as to how much death is just taken for granted. Right. I mean, it, uh, and I see this all the time at the many funerals that I uh, go to officiate uh, where, you know, people might be, they, they come into the, they might be stricken, you know, for that moment. They, they express grief in that moment. And then as soon as they, you know, walk out of the sanctuary, they're looking at their cell phones, right? Like, what, what's next? You know, what can I, um, how, how can I kind of put this behind me, this right, loss? Right. There is something to be said for tradition and rites and rituals. And one of the rituals, of course, in the Jewish faith is the idea of shiva, which means you stay after the funeral, which is quick. You, you remain in the company of friends and family there for support. So I guess the question or the observation, Rabbi, is community and people and relationships, you talked about this earlier, are the outgrowth of the reaction to death. It's a, you don't beat death, but you learn to deal with it because you have other people to connect to. Absolutely. And, and the, uh, the, especially in the traditional Jewish world, you don't necessarily question death. Although our first reaction as humans, when we heard have somebody has died, we say, well, how old was this person? And what was he, did he eat too much, you know, butter or something like that? Uh, we, we kind of want to know that, but you know, in, in traditional Judaism, the, the idea is that you don't question it. You know, it's uh, traditionally, this is what the deity has decreed is going to happen and you would just have to accept the righteousness of that decree and community is key i mean you don't have to figure out what to do you 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 know your first responsibility is to take care of the body and then after the body is buried then you you, you start the grieving process and the community embraces you in your grief and and attends tends to all your needs for those uh, seven days of shiva yeah, I was, I was listening to what you were bringing up uh, in the earlier part of this conversation, 
which is regarding mortality. I've been spending pretty much, or rather most of the time since you and I met yesterday, questioning my own particular mortality. Mm. How much has it got to do with how I feel and how I'm taking care of both of my feelings as well as taking care of my physical condition? Are they on the same wavelength? Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to put myself in a situation of others who are having to confront that kind of mortality. And what is it that's motivating as far as their physical and mental conditions and are people suffering mm. unnecessarily because they haven't had some foresight mm -hmm. that ends up creating, as you were using that example of someone who passed away from uh, that particular cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are we at a multitude of crossroads where we are waking ourselves up, not because of our religion and beliefs? Are we then able to adequately respond to all the different forces of the universe? That we're not just here as one particular unique distinction of life. Mm -hmm. We have a livelihood to be able to be responsible. And one of the fitting frames of references has to do with beliefs and religion, because people are very much guided by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know the example of you know being with a younger man as he as he died. He he is still very much present. You know, and he was a beloved member of this community. He died about uh, about three and a half years ago, um, and he still. I mean, he the, the, he I, I think was able to face the end without fear, because he was surrounded by love. You know, in his final moments, the people who I think, in my experience, are more face their 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 own mortality with fear are those who have regrets you know with their life you know realize that they've spent way too much time on their professional life and not so much time getting to really know their spouse or to to know their children or to have a group of friends you know who provide uh, um companionship um you know that so so to me you know the big reminder about mortality is that the most important thing we have in this world is each other, and we better yeah. wake up to that. One of the biggest, hottest of very delicate topics around in death these days, especially amongst younger people, is the word suicide. Mm. And it seems to be very much exasperated with the overuse and the abuse that goes on amongst social media. And I recently had a very, very uh, ugly confrontation with a family member who I would not name her at all, but she said while well, we were driving back from a particular occasion, family occasion, and she happens to be very well qualified in the sort of medical community. And she abruptly said that suicide was a form of selfishness. And unfortunately, I let myself go. And I said, how dare you even bring up that particular experience? As you well know, my mother took her own life. And of course, it's, it's happening amongst many, many different levels of different ages. <laughs> I think there's some numbers that were being thrown around recently about that the suicide rate is the highest it's ever been, 
with certain generations. Mm -hmm. And it's also suggested that there are more suicides amongst members of the military than there are actual members of the military being killed on the battlefield. And I wrote down the suicide, I just wrote down sort of, is it a helpless form of death? Is one particular put in such a predicament that you become completely and utterly helpless to be able to cope with right, and be able to naturally respond to overcome that kind of helplessness. And that's really what I can consider where my mother was at when she was faced with overwhelming uh, concerns and consideration. She, 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 she lost help. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in that case, uh, just as, as in the case of people who are suffering from painful diseases, death is a release from pain. And psychic pain is just as real as and it manifests itself in, in the body too. That kind of suffering, um, what your mother went through, yes, and the absence of any kind of hope for um, for her future. I mean, it, it's a uh, yeah. You know, I, I wish that we that one of the things we took from this experience, this collective facing of uh, of our mortality with the pandemic, is the uh, ability to be more vulnerable with each other, to, to speak with each other more about our own fears, um, our own challenges that we face for uh, about being uh, human. Um, we, we, we're not there yet. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable. Before, yeah, and I think much of the time we can't do it. Well, Jordan and I, we did a recent podcast and recording, which was recently launched, wasn't it, uh, uh, Jordan. Oh, the one about Prince Harry and Prince his Harry. admission to his vulnerabilities, etc. Yeah, whether you believe that it's partly to sell books, uh, everything is these days, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, it, it, he indicates honestly that things were going on that were not pleasant, that most people wouldn't want to share. I, I did want to, before we wrap up, though, uh, make make it a bit lighter in a sense <laughs> And talk about my one of my favorite Lincoln quotes. Everyone has a favorite Lincoln quote. I got about 50 of them, and so do you uh, folks, I'm sure. It's not the years in your life, but the life in your years. And um, our, I, just, I just question, because Julian and I are men of a certain age, and uh, I can tell you that I don't act my age, and I haven't acted my age for a long time. But the, the sort of the construct of culture that says you get older, you have to retire, gold watch, and life's over. I think seeing people in their 80s, 90s, and even beyond just creating and being alive and being is the great antidote to death. Death mm -hmm. is going to happen, but we are not going to slow down. Comment, Rabbi? Yeah, absolutely. I, well, I'll, I'll quote one of my, since you quoted Lincoln, you know, one of my favorite uh, proverbs about death is a, it's a Persian proverb. And it says that you know, when we enter into this world, um, we enter crying while all those around us are smiling. And we need to live our life in such a way that when we leave the world, we are smiling and while those around us are crying. We've, we've invested in those relationships and lived our life so that we, we can let go of it, you know, with, um, mm. with peace. I like what you're bringing up, Bervy, because one of my... Uh, uh, favorite people I ever got to know and have a privilege of knowing was a very top scientist. He was John Archibald Wheeler, who actually took over the job of Einstein. He actually worked with Einstein. And I think what kept him working until his 90s, unfortunately, he succumbed to the condition of Alzheimer's, but he worked till his 90s because I think he was never satisfied just by solutions and answers. He lived in the inquiry. Mm 
and his inquiry became part of his legacy, which I remembered, which was how come existence. He was still living on the edge of that kind of inquiry right until his dying days. And here's a man who, who was fortunate enough to, to work alongside Albert Einstein. And I was a privileged, you know, I just called him out of the blue. And so uh, that's a satisfying response rather than giving an answer or solution, you know, which is a question of possibility rather than sort of making some false assertions that we already know what we're all about, well, and then death becomes a sort of a formality. Julian, you're the role model for picking up the phone and being curious and calling anybody <laughs> on the planet, literally. I, I mean, yeah. you know him, Rabbi, as a yes. congregant, but as the ever-curious Julian, and I think that's I'll what... I'll tell you a funny story. Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense for Kennedy, who was one person I called, called, and he called me back when I lived in Sweden, and he regarded me as the most persistent person he'd ever met in his life. Now imagine that. It was a <laughs> secretary of defense for, for the Kennedy uh, administration. Amazing. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for, for being open-minded enough, because I know you did have some uh, great, great concerns, but I really found this uh, a very exciting, a very stimulating, very responsible kind of, I call it a response as an inquiry and further to be continued. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, Julian, I uh, appreciate the time we spent together and I appreciate your persistence and kind of nudging me to do this because I enjoyed it, our conversation very much. The conversation continues on the Language for Leading podcast with Julian Sturt, available on all podcast platforms. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review the show, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. The Language for Leading podcast, impactful conversation about fundamental principles that will grow your business and change your life for the better.